Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, let me start by saying Happy New Year. It's our first podcast of 2022, and I'm so happy to be back in the swing of things. So I hope all of our listeners had a very happy and healthy holiday season. Now, 2021 ended on a pretty sad note in the celebrity world. Betty White, best known to TV fans for her Emmy-winning roles on The Golden Girls and The Mary Tyler Moore Show, passed away on December 31st at the age of 99. To soap fans, she's remembered for her bold and beautiful run as Anne Douglas, mother to Stephanie and Pam. And I remember how big that casting was. I mean, you had Susan Flannery playing Stephanie and definitely needed an actress of a certain caliber to play opposite her. And that storyline in general was so powerful. And Betty really got a chance to show off her dramatic chops, which I feel wasn't her typical role to play. Uh, You know, all in all, it was just like such a successful run for her. And it's fun for us that she has a soap tie, um, but she will certainly be missed by so many. Absolutely. And as we moved into 2022, the soap world was rocked by a fictional death. Uh, Earlier this week, GH fans were treated to the surprise return of Jane Elliott as Tracy, who came bearing the sad news that her paramour, Luke Spencer, had died off screen in a cable car accident. Now, I've seen fans debating online about whether Luke is really dead. A fair question, given the propensity for coming back from the dead that soap characters, Luke included, have demonstrated. But I have to say how moved I was by the powerful performances we saw from a trio of beloved GH vets, Jane, uh, Jeannie Francis as Luke's ex-wife, Laura, and Jacqueline Zeman as Luke's sister, Bobby, uh, as they reacted to the loss. And we also saw Christina Wagner back on the scene as Felicia. I had the great pleasure of catching up with her uh, for an interview in the new issue about her return. Christina told me that Google has been her friend as she gets back into the swing of all things Port Charles. She's been using all the information about the show online to familiarize herself with the storylines that are in progress and with the new characters that have been introduced in her absence. And she also told me how much it means to her and kind of amazes her that fans of the show reacted 
you know, so positively to the news that she was back on contract and that they have always embraced Felicia and rooted for her. I definitely think the canvas is richer with her there. And from what we saw on screen this week, it seems clear that she is going to be like a dog with a bone trying to solve the mystery of her missing granddaughter's whereabouts, which could definitely throw a wrench into the scheme that Maxie and Brooklyn have cooking. Oh, for sure. And trust I could not be more in for that story. Um, now, I also love a story that brings like all of the Port Charles vets together. Um, you know, that's why I loved the scenes that you mentioned with all the women and just kind of one by one seeing everyone's reaction, I think has been so amazing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, though Luke and Laura are what sucked me into GH, I understand the storyline value of playing this beat. So I am curious to see how it all plays out. Um, now, speaking of vets, over on The Young and the Restless, we're going to see the Fisher-Baldwin family in the spotlight as Michael debates retiring from the district attorney's office. So this will also mark Michael's portrayer, Christian LeBlanc's 30th anniversary with the show. And this is a special episode that will be one to watch. And I sincerely hope we're going to see more of these characters this year. We also have some bold and beautiful casting news to share as the world turns alum Cassandra Creech, who played Denise, has been cast on the soap as Grace Buckingham, Zoe and Paris's mother, who was also a doctor. So it will be interesting to see how the show plans to use her. I thought she was fantastic on World Turns, so I am very excited to meet Dr. Grace and see what she's all about. You know, it just occurred to me as you were talking that she is the third World Turns alum that I could think of coming onto that show as a doctor. Uh, John Hensley, who played Holden on World Turns, was briefly on B&B as Dr. Mead. And Hilary B. Smith, who played Margot, played a sex therapist named Dr. Barton. So shout out to the Oakdale educational system for churning out all those doctors. <laughs> uh, now, I have to tell you how excited I am about who we get to chat with on today's podcast. GH's Nancy Legrand, who plays Alexis. Uh, She started her daytime career on One Life before creating one of my all-time favorite soap characters, Julia Wainwright on Santa Barbara, which is where I was first introduced to her. And I may have told this story on the podcast before, but her late father was a substitute teacher at my high school. And the very first time I was ever in a classroom with Mr. Grand, I told him after class that I was a huge fan of his brilliant daughters. And he just lit up and he always remembered me from that day on and would greet me so warmly if we ever saw each other in the hallway or anything like that. And I felt like so cool because I knew Nancy Lee Grand's father. I am smiling so wide. I do not love that story more, and I could actually hear it again and again. Um, Now, I, too, was a big Julia fan before I became a fan of Alexis, and I am so excited to have Nancy as our guest. So let's get her on the line and see how she's doing. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Steph. Hi, Mara. Hello. Happy New Year. Lovely to not see you, and I say that in the most lovely way. Happy New Year, because (laughs) this is my favorite kind of podcast, where you can hear me, but I can't be seen. <laughs> so even though I can see you guys right now and you both look lovely, but again, it's earlier here. Uh, make sure all readers of your uh, listeners of your natural <laughs> beauty. So, Oh yes. Just, just organic, natural. It is. <laughs> um, so we're going to start back at the beginning. You share a hometown with Mara, the Chicago suburb of yeah. Illinois, and you were raised in Skokie. So tell us about your childhood. Well, I mean, honestly, after 34 years, I'm sure people have heard my, my childhood for <laughs> <laughs> interminably. But, um, you know, I have to say, and Mara will completely understand, what a beautiful place to have a childhood, right? I completely agree. In the Midwest, I say this lovingly, in a blue state, 
uh, and there, so you have, what you have is you have this, you, the sophistication of a city, yet you're in the outskirts of it. So it's lots of green. And, and the, but there's a Midwestern um, camaraderie, of, of this, this sort of organic um, kindness that you grow up with. And so, and I'm not saying this doesn't exist in other places, but it, for me, the beauty of it is that it was the best of both worlds. So I had the sophistication of a city and I had the kindness and warmth of a loving community. So um, I know that you can relate to that. And, and That's we why both, we both turned out so perfect. <laughs> so super. <laughs> um, I have nothing but great memories. I did not have a childhood that I find complaint with. I had good friends. Um, I went to, you know, really top rated schools. Uh, so I was really blessed to have a, an education that was forward thinking. Um, it's also was a blessing for me growing up in Skokie to have grown up in a, in a Jewish community where I had friends that had numbers on their arms from being in, in concentration camps. So that gives you a real understanding of humanity, of survival, of what people go through and were able to survive. Uh, it sort of sets the course of um, what we're made of uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a, I think, a more profound way. So um, I went to, I grew up on Karlov Avenue and across the street was Highland School. Um, my friends, some of my friends that I went to Highland school are still my friends. And then we had went to this beautiful junior high and then it was just seventh and eighth grade. I loved it. And I think my advocacy began there, um, because I did a bit of a protest because the cheerleaders did not have uniforms, but the players did. And I felt like we were all in this together. And that, um, you know, that the, the, the women involved in sports, which at that time was just us being the cheerleaders, <laughs> um, you know, that we should have uniforms that were paid for by the school as well. And so um, that was my first achievement as an activist. <laughs> <laughs> very well done. Exactly. Very, very, very important. <laughs> Important in high school, you knew what the issues were. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, this was this was seventh grade. Though. This was, um, and uh, I ran for president it, it, for the sixth grade president in, in Highland School, and I beat a boy. And it had just been boys that were presidents up till then. So you know, I was sort of getting my my sea legs. <laughs> <laughs> into feminism and activism <laughs> early on. Um, and then I went to, a, it's just a brilliant, wonderful high school, Niles North High School. I don't know what it's, what's happening there now, but back then it was just, I had good friends. I, had a, I, I just, I loved it. I really loved it. So I uh, got started in show business I did not even do theater until my junior year. I was in um, a variety show 
in my sophomore year because my family was singing. They did proscenium stage theater at the community club for Jewish women. And they were these spectacular um, proscenium shows, staged shows with full orchestras. And um, they did Oh Man of La Mancha and South Pacific and uh, you name it. I mean, it was just West Side Stories, yeah, Sound of Music. It, it was just everything. So I grew up in that thinking this is the most fun people can ever have. It was, there was just musicals. I grew up with musicals. So uh, I did that. And then I, I decided that I did more acting as a cheerleader than I would ever do on the stage. So I took singing and got myself really, really prepared and then got the lead in Bye Bye Birdie my junior year. And that is what did it. Because when you're connected on all cylinders or you think you are, you believe you are, where when I was perform when I was on stage singing or a song and the audience was out there and I felt like we were having this relationship and I felt pure joy. I felt that I was tapped in, tuned in, turned on all cylinders ago. And that's the feeling we all want. That's Nirvana, right? That's the thing. So I felt that I just, it, it, I just felt utter the joy. And I also felt like I'm good at this is, I felt like I was supposed to be doing this, that, you know, it, when you feel tapped in, that's that connected feeling you feel. So that just became my go-to place for joy. However, growing up in a very practical community um, where, you know, you're a student, you're a good student, you go to college and so forth. Um, I just thought, well, this is not something practical you do with your life. And so, I mean, I, I never really thought to do it as a career. It, it didn't, it just didn't compute. So, um, my senior year, I also got the, got the lead in, in that musical as well. And um, somebody saw me, and uh, if somebody from said, what, they're doing Guys and Dolls at Goodman Theater, why don't you go audition? It's an equity theater. And I went, what's equity? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know. And so I did. I went and auditioned, and I got that. And so I think when life presents opportunities for you and then you the doors open you're not constantly pushing um, early on that it was sort of a signal anyway so that one thing led to another and that's you know thus I'm you know here still doing it for a living which is a blessing all right there's my job <laughs> go ahead it was great talking to you thanks so much um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you went on to college, and as I understand it... I did not go to college. Not go to college. Okay. I did so not go to college. I went to theater school. Uh, well, no, I did I did uh, Goodman Theater. I did. I worked with the Dallas Theater Center. I worked with Milwaukee. I, I forgot the theater. I worked with Meadowbrook Theater in Michigan. I, did, I worked professionally okay. for a couple of years, or a couple of years, and... I went back to Goodman to do something, and um, Brian Bedford, this very famous Shakespeare, English Shakespearean classical actor, um, was doing something, and he was doing Henry V when we were doing Guys and Dolls. It was, Goodman was a very well-known, very reputable rep theater. And I saw him, and he said, um, 
what have you been doing? And blah, blah, blah. He goes, do you know why you get work? Do you know why you're, why you're acting and performing? And I said, because I love it. He said, that's not good enough. He said, you need to go be trained and figure out why you're getting these jobs and how you're going to sustain that and so forth. And he said, he goes, I would recommend the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York under uh, the tutelage of uh, Sandy Meisner and Bill Esper, who are, I, I now know, were two of the finest acting teachers in, you know, ever, really. And, um, and so I did. I listened to Brian Bedford, who is no longer with us, but, um, uh, and that was the best thing that I possibly could have done. I stopped, you know, I just took two years off, went to New York, uh, and, 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 you know, immersed myself literally in acting for eight, 10 hours a day, every day for two years. So as you were launching your career in New York, uh, what were some of your first paying gigs? And I remember when we talked to Kim Zimmer that your name came up as someone that you yeah. had well, with Kim, early on. Right, because Kim, we were the gals in Chicago early. You know, we were, uh, Kim is, a, I think, a year older than me. She, um, we did these industrials, which I don't know if they still do them, but those were really good paying gigs where... I did, I did quite a few of them, like Kentucky Fried Chicken and, and uh, uh, tractors and Kenny shoes. And, um, but the, the corporation would pay big money to have sort of a musical review written for them. And so Kim and I were doing it, getting hired from Chicago, but they were mostly New York actors or Broadway actors or off-Broadway actors that weren't working or, or because you got paid more to do that than you did theater. So... That's where I met Kim, doing that sort of stuff. Um, and then we had this agent in Chicago that set us up with ABC. Um, so they, they came and we auditioned. They, we just did a general audition. I know you heard this probably from Kim. And so, you know, the casting, Mary Jo Slater from One Life to Live and all these things were there and saw us. And I, they took Kim first I was in school so I couldn't do that and then they you know I was sort of cheating and doing one life to live while I was still in school which was a no-no but I did it anyway um and yeah so um but in New York too I did uh I I got hired for instance to go do theater in Michigan with a, a company in Michigan and I got hired to do musicals with you know people who have been on Broadway. And I'm like, I need to be really clear about this. I don't sing that well at all. Kate does. It's, it, it was my desire to be a great singer. And that desire skipped me and went to Kate. Right? <laughs> um, but I think I loved what I was doing so much that, that that was the thing where they went, oh, she looks like she's fun. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I, I, I just, I just, had a, a, a way of connecting and, and uh, I, I, whatever that thing is. Um, because honestly, I, I, I would take, I would practice all the time and I'd take singing lessons and my singing teacher said to me, just so you know, you don't organically have an instrument. Oh, it worked and thank God I found acting because I would, I would, my career would have died shortly after. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned One Life to Live. It was in 1980 that you landed your first daytime gig as Beverly Wilkes, Marco Dane's secretary. So many years ago, you told Digest that you'd actually grown up watching One Life and were particularly in awe of Judith Light, who played Karen oh, yeah. when you joined the show. So what do you remember about landing the role? 
Well, I watched the ABC lineup growing up with my mom and my sisters, and it, 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 we just did. It was uh, all my, it was Ryan's Hope. All my, actually, I thought, what did we just watch TV all day? It was Ryan's <laughs> Hope, All My Children, One Life to Live in General Hospital, right? So I was, nice. right. And I was a total ABC thing. So I knew all these people. And also, incidentally, when I first moved to New York, someone I had done uh, <laughs> Summer Night's Dream with, she played Titania, and she said, I want to fix you up with... Darren Kelly. So, and I'm like, I looked, I said, oh my God, it's Dan Kennecott. <laughs> and so we went on a date and we dated for two years. And so, and I'm not sure, I think it was because he was Dan Kennecott. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, but, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I walk onto the One Life to Live set and there's Judith and there's Jerry Anthony. Um, and that's who I worked with. So I played Jerry Anthony's secretary and it was all the stuff with Judith and Jerry and there you go, you know, school right there. And I, you know what? I was a smart and I was raised well and, and smart enough to know you just be quiet and you watch and you learn. And so I, you know, that was just, you know, another way of me um, seeing it's, di it was different then than it is now. It was, a different process, daytime, and especially, and then on Santa Barbara, and then sort of the first few years, a couple of years on General Hospital, where, you know, Jane Elliott and I were talking about this yesterday. And I mean, this sort of segues into a different conversation about um, the difference of the date of, you know, soaps then and now is, I call us, us vets, you know, so I'm boxing myself in with the vets of the vets. Um, it was a different effort. Uh, there was firstly more time, but there was also a sense that our job was to not just do the material, but enhance the material and bring our creativity to the material. And how are we going to make this work? And how about if we change that? Or we do that? Or we, it was that process that created that look then we're now with the speed and it's just different so we jane and i were talking about we work the way we work and we were trained a certain way and we grew up a certain way so if someone word polices you now or um it, you know it, it goes faster They're, they want it they want a result and not a process and stuff um you know we've learned to adapt to work it's sort of a train that that um just keeps going and you you just you know you adapt to the speed of the train and you just you know keep going on the journey where before there was a you know a train that people would get on and they'd, you know, have dinner and talk about things and, you know, have cocktails. <laughs> and Then we'd get off and we'd look at, you know, wherever we were and make a picnic outside. You know, it was more of an adventure and a group effort. And now it's, it's, it's the Metro. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's just different. Uh, One Life to Live came to an end for you about two years in. Did you move to LA right away? And if so, what motivated you to go well, west? What happened was while I was on, I think I was on One Life to Live for about 10 months and I, I was with a non-contract. So meaning that they had to sort of, I, they would call, I worked 
I think kind of regularly for 10 months. Now nobody's under contract, it seems. I mean, I thank God I'm on General Hospital, one of the contract players, but there are few of us and most of the people are not under contract. Back then, it was, um, I think they didn't know if they were, you know, this character was going to be something more or not. So, um, and I was happy for it to be not under contract. So I, um, I, I got, uh, chosen to audition for this show called the Gangster Chronicles, which was a big hit. It turned into a big, huge show on NBC and it was a big deal. There was a lot of money involved in this. And so I was up for the part of Bugsy Siegel's wife. I can't remember her name now. So um, I had, I think, four screen tests for that. And the final two were in Los Angeles. So they flew me. So I couldn't work on One Life to Live, uh, I, it, whatever. And Joe Stewart sued me because I, I, he said, you, you know, I, I gave them seven days notice, which is what you have to do or something when you're under contract. But uh, he, I guess he just didn't want me to get away. I, I'm not quite sure what that was about. but. Um, and then that went to mediation and I, I won that. But anyway, so, so the, Greg, the Gangster Chronicles uh, brought me to Los Angeles and I just stayed. Um, the part was between me and Kathleen Lloyd and Kathleen Lloyd got the part. So, but it was a cool experience. And, the, you know, all the, you know, 40s makeup with the, it was the screen test like in the old days. And uh, it's very exciting and I just stayed. Yeah. Well, you did get a fair amount of primetime episodic work, um, mm-hmm. including gigs on Magnum P.I. and Knight Rider. Um, did you feel like you were getting good traction or did it feel to you like a struggle to get established on the West Coast? You know, I feel like when I hear stories, I feel like, you know, obviously I'm persistent and consistent and I was prepared. I came out trained. Uh, granted, you're not really good out of school, it takes a while for all that stuff to sink in. Um, but I uh, got introduced to Mark Malice, who was the head of casting at Universal. And I, I sort of was one of the 20 women at the time that was getting hired to do guest star stuff. So I, you know, it started out, I came out here, I think I was teaching aerobics at the Sports Connection um, for a while. I think, but in, I mean, not for photos or it didn't happen, Nancy Legron. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's true. Show us your leg warmers. <laughs> yeah, I, I had leg warmers. And yeah, and I was, it, I mean, it's hilarious. And I'm showing people how to use like machines. And stuff. <laughs> it was, it's really quite hilarious. Because, you know, you, they tell you you do 12 reps three times and I would, they would do eight and I'm going, that's fine. <laughs> Don't overdo it. Relax. <laughs> You want to go out for ice cream? <laughs> so, yeah. So I did that, but not for too long. And um, I, because I started working enough to support myself, and I think I did like 25 guest star things. And in those days, the guest star was about you, about the character. And, uh, you know, I did Murder, She Wrote and stuff. And, and, Little uh, House. <laughs> I did. Well, that was my very first job in television besides uh one life to live mm-hmm. uh, yeah i was a saloon girl yeah you were i, I was a i was a hooker <laughs> <laughs> and um it was just all very exciting you know it was just all very exciting and then you know mara in the skokie paper you know it's like nancy legron niles north graduate stars stars in little house on the prairie you know i mean i didn't it was just very exciting for everyone and my parents would i think be calling the newspapers for every job <laughs> So, yeah. 
That's adorable. Um, okay, so let's fast forward. It's 1985. And uh, that was the year that you created the role of Julia Wainwright on Santa Barbara, arguably one of the best written female characters in the history of daytime television, if not television. I don't uh, disagree. I do not disagree. So tell us your Santa Barbara casting story. Um, they came to me, which was nice. And I was thinking, oh, wow, I didn't have, you know, growing up with soap operas, I think I always sort of pictured myself in one, but I never, I mean, that was just fun. Um, I never really contemplated that. And plus I was doing day and nighttime and, you know, doing relatively well. Um, and so I thought, I don't know that I want to do this. And then I thought, all right, I'll do it for a year and see what it's like to have a steady paycheck, you know, to have just where I don't have to go auditioning and do stuff. And so I did it for a year and I was, uh, you know, when you have Patrick Mulcahy writing for you and the Dobsons creating characters that were coming out of literature, classical literature, either templates from Shakespearean characters or, um, I remember Bridget Dobson saying to me, she goes, I see this sort of as a Beatrice type character. And much ado about nothing. Much, that's, oh my God, I, I can credit, hear. Credit to Stephanie. Hear, you're yelling at me right now. Um, <laughs> much ado about nothing, thank you, Mark. And, um, you know, talking and frame, using frame, frames of references that were from classical literature. It wasn't, you know, Dexter down this, you know, some soapy character. These were well thought out, multidimensional I was one of the few people in the cast that wasn't on Broadway. And when you have somebody like Patrick Mulcahy and the bar was set high, writing your words, the words that come out of your, you know, that you get the privilege of saying, uh, and it was not what I expected. It was this, it was this playground, this rep theater of really well-trained actors for the most part. Um, and really innovative writing and you come to work and it wasn't like you go there, you go there. It was like, okay, what do you feel like doing? You know? And then sometimes you get directors going, you got here, you got then I go, but how would you, how, you know, how about we do this? And then you're going, we're not doing that today, Nancy. I said, Oh yes, we are. You know, it was a constant, I was falling on my sword every day because I wanted every day to be as good as the best day there. And, and a director would come in and not, Michael Gleone would come in and not have any shots on his sheet. And, you know, I was working with deep thing like a Martinez is a, deep freaking guy and Lane is so trained and clever and you know Louise was on Broadway and Nicholas Costa was on Broadway and Dame Judith Anderson was my aunt it was it was a perfect synchronicity of the best I think of soaps mm -hmm. there was five and then it got crazy you know but there were five years where it, it was a synchronistic experience of good creative energy that, so then they would ask me to stay another year and double my money. And then it, I, we kept going like that. And then I went, then I'm in, now I'm in. I said, I'd have to get like a part like Murphy Brown to have a better part than I have. And also just sort of spiritually, that part, the part of Julia was sort of this sister that was, uh, that was gro growing side by side as I was growing and we were evolving together. And yet Patrick was putting words in her mouth that gave me this cathartic sense or was a teacher to me. And so, you know, it, I grew up with her and, um, 
it, we both became women together, as I say it, over the 10 years. It was well, a very special experience. Well, you're speaking to two very big fans of the show. <laughs> and she, uh, Mara and I have often discussed that we feel like Julia wouldn't have been Julia and the role wouldn't have become what she became had another actress been cast in the part. Mm -hmm. um, Sweet well, it's true. Do you feel like you had a role in shaping her beyond just saying those words that Patrick was writing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I participated uh, a lot there. Um, as things changed, I learned a lot about writing from Patrick. And so, um, and that, you know, we part, like I said, when we talked, I mentioned before, we participated, you know, much to the chagrin of, you know, producers that are going, oh, just shut up, just say what's on the page. <laughs> you know, we want to get out of here. And, but I was, I was um, spirited, you know, um, back then and always with good intention. Um, I had to learn over the years to pick and choose my battles, which is also a part of growing up. But it's like once you feel what it's, it, it, and again, the bar was high there. So then when the bar lowered, it was frustrating. And so, um, but yeah, I, I, I wrote, they let me write some things. I, I, Chuck asked me, uh, I grew up in an, with my father being, uh, and he was a, d died in uh, a recovering alcoholic, but he was uh, uh, an unmanaged alcoholic. Um, for many years. So I grew up in he, so Chuck, um, because Mason, my character of Mason was an alcoholic, really t spent a lot of time talking to me going, what was that like? What was that like? And he made my, my father, Julia's father, an alcoholic. Which, so I got to work out this thing in my real life through my character and also see my mother's perspective because I was saying things to Mason that my, I could have said to my father or my mother could have said to my father and I got to understand all sides of it and almost play all the different roles in it. Uh, and it's funny, in General Hospital, I'm playing an alcoholic. So now I so see my father's, I, 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 I feel him and, and his, uh, the challenges through, the, you know, what I'm playing now. And then in Ju I, 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 I'm probably not doing a good job of explaining that, but it was, um, I think the question was, did you shape it? Uh, yes, because whether they asked me or not, I participated <laughs> in, <laughs> in the, the, I, I gave, I shared my opinions with them often. Um, and so, because you dug deeper back then, everyone dug deeper. There was a level of depth that I would have to say, is not the same now. My needs for what my job needs to be are different now. Back then, it was the art of it, you know, um, the truth. I was always, I'm, I'm a true, you know, I'm always looking for the truth. And acting, you have to. So uh, I was a bit of a dog with a bone back then, more so than I am now, if you can imagine. <laughs> and um, Lane was very adamant as Tony Gary was adamant about being a gad about town, you know, about not being committed to anyone, to, to a woman, not being married because that made him less desirable and less sexy and, 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 had, and, and presented him with a character that had less possibilities. And I said, 
after I got to work through the um, codependent woman that I was playing and work through that process, I said to them, I said, this, she cannot make excuses for him one more time because I always feel like I'm taking the audience with me that I, on both shows, play a character that's somewhat, you know, Julia was very relatable. Alexis goes in and out because it's a little more eccentric on General Hospital. Um, I think the Santa Barbara was a little more reality-based. And when it wasn't, there was a definite tongue-in-cheek aspect where you knew you were looking at something silly. It's like when they changed, like when a, a new Mason came. Remember they punched one, one got punched in the face by someone and then the new character, they had a sense of humor about soap things. Mm -hmm. Um, But I said that I can't do that on behalf of the women watching me. Um, We can't, can't, I I would say we can't do this anymore. And so they made Lane marry me. (laughs) Oh my God, boy, did he not like that. (laughs) <laughs> but I felt victorious in that win because that was necessary. Not that being married is the, but he needed to say, I'm going to take you any way you are. Mm-hmm. Warts and all, you know, it's not just the other way around. And so, uh, so in those regards, yeah, I was very conscious of the fact that um, there were people watching me and relating to this character and, and looking up to this character to, you know, be a leader of sorts. So, yeah. So, so you had what I think we can now say was an infamously stormy creative partnership with Lane. (laughs) Um, What was that like for you? uh, You know, at the time and what is your perspective on it now? Well, there's a deep love and a deep respect um, with Lane and I Um, like two people who are very um, stubborn and uh, smart, um, persistent, um, all of those things. And well, you know, well-trained. And him even more so than me in terms of the classics. Um, And uh, he was, he was, he's a very smart guy and he's a great director. And so, you know, I think he was very male and I was very female and we're going to butt up against each other because I wanted equality and he, he didn't, I mean, why should he, why would a white man, you know, they've got it made in the shade, you know, they're good. (laughs) And so, you know, my wanting equality on the set as well as with our characters um, would cause problems. Add to that, we were ha- having sex in the dressing room <laughs> and flying off to New York and having weekends. And both of us were in other relationships. You know, like I was with Sam Barons at the time and Sam and I would have broken up for a minute and there I was with Lane. And, um, you know, until Bridget Dobson hears us in the dressing room and knocks on the door, she goes, whatever is going on in there, stop that right now. <laughs> <laughs> No good can come from this. And Lane and I didn't talk to each other for eight months, and nobody would even know that because it was the best work we ever did. But we did not speak until they went five, four, three, two, boom. 
And it was, we just worked so well together because what we loved each other and hated each other. And that makes great contrast, which makes great, you know, acting circumstances. So, um, yeah, that was, you know, but I, I adore him. I adore him so much. And I, I so loved that time. It was really very fulfilling acting wise. I'm not even sure I realized that at the time, but you know, when you're older and you can draw comparisons and look back, it was really good. And it was good for me too. Well, but that's the thing. I met such interesting, there were smart, interesting, productive, accomplished women watching this soap, which is not, I mean, there's always that, you know, but it was almost the entire audience was. And even globally, the sophistication, you can't be, it has to have somewhat sophistication in Europe to have people, everyone was attracted to it globally. Here, the audience, because it was up against General Hospital, which was, you know, so known and famous, it, it was a very specific audience for Santa Barbara. So the, the ratings were never, they also always put it in the wrong time slot. Um, but it was sort of a moment in time, and I don't think it was meant to last, but it globally was the number one show in the world. You know, I, it, it was crazy. So there, obviously what I'm talking about, that uniqueness, that moment in time, was um, palpable mm-hmm. to others as well and to a very smart audience. It was not where people make fun of daytime and where everybody, you know, anybody who stays home and watches soap opera is an idiot, which I absolutely completely don't agree with. But there, there was this uh, notion about that. And in Santa Barbara, it was mm-hmm. lawyers and doctors and publishers and journalists and crazy, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, well, it was during this time that you also won your first Emmy in 1989, tying with Debbie Morgan, uh, who played All My Children's Angie for Outstanding Oh, great. Right. She so great. So what do you remember about that night? It's just that was a touchstone moment. You know, that's where you go, oh, see, you can dream it, and then it can happen, which for spiritual evolution, that was, for me, the most important aspect of it. That's what I got out of it. It's also obviously nice to be recognized. And back then it was really competitive and everybody was so delicious and, and um, accomplished and, and good. And um, it was, you know, it was, a, it was that experience. But for me, it was more of a, a connection between heaven and earth or thoughts and um, manifestation. Mm-hmm. The best part about it was how happy it made my parents. I mean, the look on their faces... It was when I first saw them, because I wouldn't let them come because I went, I'm not going to win. I don't want you to sit there. And, and I, so they stayed at the hotel down the street and they were so mad at me and they came running in and their face, they were so, I mean, for them too, this is, this is a dream, you know, for them to see their child, um, you know, I mean, however the Emmys are now or things, it seems, a lot of it seems pretty kooky to me now. I have some thoughts about that, but, um, uh, it was a different experience again, you know, we're at Radio City Music Hall and places like that. It was just a bigger event. And, and for, for whatever reasons, the Emmy is the most prestigious award you can have as an actor. And which is why I think it should be taken a little bit more seriously than it, it, it is, has been in the last few years. 
So <clears throat> skipping ahead to the end of Santa Barbara, um, you've said before in our magazine that, that you felt creatively depleted by the end of that show to the point that you weren't even sure if you wanted to keep acting. Can you remember what that? I don't. Was? I don't remember saying that, and I, I would. I would have to say that was a little dramatic. No, <laughs> that was a little over the top. I'm, I don't know what was going on with me at that particular moment. I think what I meant to say was that I felt complete in that role. That I didn't feel that there was. I felt like they had taken her from one point and taken her on a journey, and it was a story and it was a, it was done. It was good. Anything else that would have happened to her would have been repetitive and uh, not as interesting. So I felt good about that. And then when I was ready to go on and do um, other things, I, but I will say though, I, we worked 16 hours every day and then I would go home and I would take that script and rip tear it apart and notes and this and that for two hours. I lived and breathed that show. And so, um, that's not, it's not the case on General Hospital. <laughs> I have a life now. You need to have a life. I have a life and enormous gratitude for this incredibly wonderful job that gives, that raised Kate and it gives me so much. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, speaking of General Hospital, yeah. uh, you, from 1995 to 96, you did a series for ABC called Murder One. And then in September 1996, you made your debut as GH's Alexis Davis. So tell mm -hmm. us how the role came about. Well, um, I wanted Kate. So I was 39, I think, at the time. And I wanted to set my life up in a way. And I, I had done, I had recurred on Melrose Place and, you know, uh, I, I worked consistently from Santa Barbara, but it, it's not the same. You have to keep going out and getting the job. You're not making the same amount of money. It's, it, you never know. There, there's, uh, you know, uh, there's a fear aspect because you just never know. And so when the next job is coming, so I wanted stability so that I could, uh, you know, I was making a nest for my child. Um, I, I planned, so I, I called General Hospital and I, it was Michelle Valjean and Wendy Rich and, and Richard Colleton. Um, so I, I let them know that if, if, if they had anything for me that I would love to come on General Hospital, I didn't call anyone else. I, I figured, I looked at the soaps and I went, the best fit for me is General Hospital. So, uh, and they were kind enough to bring me on. And so, um, you know, I planned to go to the sperm bank with my ex-boyfriend's sperm that he left for me before he moved away. Um, he broke my heart, but he left sperm in the bank because he felt guilty. <laughs> no, because he said, what can I do for you? I said, leave, leave some sperm, please. And he did. And that was the plan. And then I made one last attempt to meet somebody on a mountaintop where I'd go sit every day. And, um, I forgot to say, I, I'm not going to say anything, but anyway, I ended up having Kate that way, unplanned. Um, God bless that experience because I have my kid that led to, a, you know, there was tremendous challenges as a result of picking a, a, a person that was not a match to me to do that. And that's a whole other story that will be in my book. <laughs> so, um, but I had General Hospital, I had Kate, I raised her by myself, um, gloriously. I can say that every moment 
aside from the four years that I had to be in family court, but that worked out for me in the end and work, more importantly worked out for Kate. And um, General Hospital uh, has raised my, they, they gave me the most beautiful thing in the world. They allowed me to have her and be the mother that I wanted to be in the best way possible. And I am enormously grateful to Disney and ABC for that. Did you mandate that you had to play another lawyer or did they want you to play <laughs> no, her? I did not. I did not. Um, I, uh, that's just the way it happened. I think I was Lucy Coe's lawyer or something. That's how it or started. Kevin's, Kevin's lawyer. Kevin, Kevin's lawyer. No, I, and I, you know, it's, it's just the funniest thing though, because, you know, it's funny that I play a lawyer all the time because I'm always advocating, you know, you advocate for something and I didn't have to go to law school, which would have bored the living <laughs> Jesus out of me. Um, I'm, it's too technical. So I get to just, um, uh, you know, play one on TV. And um, I also think it's probably the more interesting profession to have on a soap because it's expansive and you can do a lot of different things in a lot of different kinds of cases. It's not, you know, I don't have to do medical jargon, although I have to do some legal stuff, but you know, when it, when it's serious lawyer stuff, I think, I think that's why they, they took my, my law license away from me because I pissed Frank off who I love. But um, he, I mean, I've known him forever, right? I've known him for 40 years. And so he knows me, right? And so I was doing, they had me running around being everybody's lawyer for their, you know, it was all minutia and just technical stuff. And I think I just threw my script down one day. I said, I hate this. Make, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Make me a hooker. And so, <laughs> because I just thought, you know, if I'm going to be a lawyer, then I want to advocate for something that matters. I don't want to be Chad Duell's, you know, doing law work for 10 year olds and you know teenagers and that doesn't mean anything that's just technical babble booble that was just driving me cuckoo so I think Frank went oh you don't want to be a lawyer fine you know so now I'm not a lawyer right they took me but I'm sure I'll be one I hope I'm back one again but I hate doing just the minutiae lawyer for everybody else's character I want to you know have some fun in the courtroom mm -hmm. Um, well, you've had a wonderful collection of leading men on General Hospital. We'd love to get your take on them, starting with Wally Kurth. Uh, I couldn't love him more. I mean, what a decent, decent, decent man. You know, I was listening to him talk about his son, Brogan, um, and how he said it, it has expanded his heart in ways that were indescribable. And, you know, what a, what a, what a, great guy he is i just read a um art uh, he wrote a letter to oh my god this this radio host who's you know growing up as a republican in a republican family and being a, a democrat and and you know just just the sort of the trajectory of that and how that came it was brilliant he's he's a full-bodied guy love him what about your <clears throat> partner the, in my opinion, all too brief sexist romance that Alexa shared with Sunny, Mrs. Oh. Maurice Bernard. You know, Maurice and I can have a full conversation with each other without either one of us saying a word. I so know what please. he's thinking. He knows what I'm thinking. He drives me crazy because you know, if his lack of involvement in the world and I want him to pay attention and he, I drive him crazy because 
um, he, 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 I drive him crazy because I'm me, you know, and I'm, I'm, and he's, but we love each other and we get each other. And it's almost like we were brother and sister in a past life or something. And by the way, that was the best written part of my existence so far um, as Alexis, that, that story with him back then, that was the good stuff. That was this, that reminded me of Santa Barbara, even though, listen, I was the biggest fan of General Hospital. I mean, is 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 as unique as we were. They were so good and grounded at soap, you know, for you know forever. And so um, they were, we were just different and both equally really good at what we were what in the genre that we were in. Um, but yeah, so you know, Maurice is my soap soulmate, and and we basically couldn't be less alike. <laughs> co-sign knowing you both oh, yeah, yeah. but the respect is very very oh my god yeah yeah he'll come right out and yeah he'll go you know you're, you're the best actress i've ever worked with in daytime when you feel like being one you know and i'm like yeah so you should have stopped at the first sentence <laughs> um well gh also hired lane davies which reteamed you with your santa barbara co-star uh cameron tell us about that dynamic it, it, for two people that have such chemistry together, it, 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 not, I mean, and that's not a braggadocious thing. It's just fact. science fact. No, I mean, you have either have chemistry or somewhere you don't. We did. And to write a character that so didn't work was really, I thought, quite remarkable um, to bring him on in that non-character and have him be so hideous to Alexis, his character be so hideous to Alexis while acting as if Alexis should be into him. It was, it was so, I, I'm going to just say this, in my opinion, it was so badly structured that it made it impossible for two people who had such good chemistry to have it not work. So that's how I think about that. That was a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, next up for Alexis was Rick, played by Rick Hurst. Oh, my God. You know, what a good actor, first of all. An underappreciated actor by, I think, whoever was writing at the time. Um, you know, when you make all the men for a while on the show look weak to make another character look strong, that's a terrible, I think, um, mistake. It's a miscalculation. It, 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 I mean, you, they worked hard to undermine, to, not, to sort of cut the knees off of a lot of the guys on the show mm -hmm. and the women. You know, you can't, you can't, in my opinion, which is really all this is, because uh, I wouldn't even begin to know how to write a soap. It is horrible, hellish job. It's easy for me to have a lot of opinions about it. Um, could I do it? Never. It's impossible. It's an impossible job to me. But I think it's important to make all the characters very substantial and strong and not to have anybody orbiting around any one or two characters, especially if those characters have, are morally, um, are amoral. So it skews the whole balance of everything, that it should be a constant struggle for who's got the power, not just they've got the power and no one else does. 
Um, and I think for a while, you know, that was what happened. And I think Rick was a casualty of that because I think he's an outstanding actor and he's a swell guy for sure. Great guy. Yeah. We agree. Um, well, after a pretty significant dry spell where she had brief involvements with characters like Mac and Sean, Julian Jerome re-entered Alexis' <laughs> orbit. Uh, so tell us about working with William DeVry and what your experience of the Julexis phenomenon was. Um, it was, you know, and this is, this is due to Ron, Carly Abadi. Um, he, I, I'm really glad, and, and I'm sure Frank, they work together always, but that was that was really good for me and i'm not sure that was this was this was a compliment to ron because i'm not sure that that i don't think they brought julian on to be with me they used the story of sam's dad to bring his character on and I'm, i think he was i'm not sure who he was supposed to go with but it wasn't me and so ron and frank saw the chemistry between the two of us and um they moved that way and that's what I grew up with in soaps. That's, that's what you, you, you saw something, you went, let's go that way. Um, so that's what happened. And, you know, I think they never really sexualized the character of Alexis. They, you know, I, I, I think there's moments where that's why when they did that show about her this year, it, 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 it meant something to me because I'm not sure where Julia, they peeled the onion and the onion and the onion and the onion. And it was so uh, dimensionalized and realized. I, I felt like Alexis really uh, was not realized. Uh, Cause I kept saying, who do you think Alexis is? And I said, you know, I, I know certain things, but I just really don't know other things. And so, um, you know, you want your character to be explored. And so, um, I think the audience, anyone that related to the character of Alexis, kind of felt that it was a little dry, um, a little unrealized, a little um, academic, and uh, not a lot of depth, certainly in relationships. And she wasn't getting satisfaction. And so the way Will looked at, you know, Julian looked at Alexis, I think was satisfying to the audience that, you know, they could feel through me what it felt like to have a man just look at you and want to devour you. And I think it sexualized her. And Frank said that because when he came on the show, you know, my character was in menopause going, I never want to have said the store is closed. And, you know, we've all felt that way. I mean, I felt that way until I met Richard. I was like, if I don't ever have sex, I'm fine with that. And now that's all we do. And it's, I'm like, wow, was I missing? What was I missing all these years, right? It was like, Phew. so um, I think that's a very important part of being a woman. It's also fine if you don't, if, you're, if the story is closed, because there's so many other things that we can do and fulfill ourselves with. But, you know, that is a part of us that if it, if it gets tapped into, it's, it's, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. And I think, that's, I think that's what the reaction of the audience was because people went cuckoo with yeah. that, right? I mean, that was such a thing. It was. Uh, so, yeah. Well, Alexis is also um, very valued, I think, to the audience as a mother and as the matriarch of mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, Davis girl dynasty. But mm -hmm. tell us about creating that alongside your three quite uh, lovely on-screen daughters, Kelly Monaco, Lexi Ainsworth, and Haley Poulos, who play Sam, Christina, and Molly. Mm. I, listen, uh, you know, I didn't create that. Uh, the writers created that. And 
uh, I loved that they did that, that they gave her three daughters. And it's this powerful estrogen pack, you know, uh, that um, we love each other um, in real life. You want, you know, sometimes I, you know, have to have a word with them in real life. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're so distinctly different, like your three daughters would be. Um, we love working together. It's fun. It's, it looks real. And I, that's my favorite thing. If you can be on a soap opera and make it look like it is a slice of actual life, when you bring people from back from the dead, not my favorite thing. Um, you know, back, or do people have twins and cousins and, you know, the soapy part of soaps, I've never been a fan of. I just have Um, to interject Thanksgiving at Alexis's house must have really been difficult for you, given how many people have recently returned from the dead. Well, at least they let me have a sense of humor about it. They let me put the, I put the line in, listen, you've been dead for a long time. You've missed a lot. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so they, you know, when they let me kind of acknowledge, that, yes, it makes me feel really warm and fuzzy inside. It's when I have to take it seriously. There was a day where I, I think it might have been that week where I had it was one show where I had to two people that were dead were not were undead. I had to undead two people in a day. <laughs> that could be my quote. <laughs> What's your quote? I had to undead two people in one day in daytime. <laughs> um, well, in your thing to overlap with Anthony Geary, uh, Alexis had a fair amount of story with Luke or Natasha, as he liked to call her. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about working with Tony. Not, nothing, nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina. <laughs> um, he is, he's another one of my soulmates, my soap, my, my creative soap soulmate, because he would he would, you know, make the material rise and he was creative and he had a sense of humor and he was a great writer and he was a great editor and he, you know, and he had caught, and I, I'm going to say this, men, even to this day, get treated differently than women. That Lane could say something really quietly and they would give him whatever he wanted. I would have to, you know, I ended up screaming and yelling because... I wasn't getting the same results. I can't just simply say something quietly and get the result. Um, I mean, I can possibly, but that, that's typically, it's still imbalanced. We're Tony and he deserved this. He, he earned the right to, and it was a different day. He grew up like we, you know, in a different day where you, let's change this, we'll fix this. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna play it this way. I'm gonna da 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 You know, along with the door, everyone was in on it, right? And so it was just, you had the time to be more creative and it was also more accepted. Um, and so Tony is who I look up to. Um, he's like, if I see something in the script, I'm going, fix it. And he'd be like, you know, um, I, he's the person that was always the smartest person in the room. And I, I'm not going to underplay. I'm, I'm, I'm smart. I'm creatively smart. I, you know, I, I'm not, but I love it when there's somebody smarter in the room and there often is, but I recognize them and I really appreciate them. I'm always just looking at them with big, wide open eyes. And Tony was that guy. Yeah. Uh, Well, speaking of uh, the character of Luke and Tony, we just saw, we just saw the return to Port Charles of Jane Elliott as Tracy. I know she is (laughs) is dear to you both personally and professionally, and you got to tell me all about it. 
Well, she's one of my close friends. So, um, you know, we hang off the set. Um, and I know people think everyone does. We don't. Um, it's a select, you know, we see each other a lot and respect each other and like each other, but she's in my friend group outside of work. And not strangely enough, most of my, she's probably the only actor friend friend in the main girlfriend group that I have, which are remarkable women. She is a force, you know, she is, um, uh, similar to Tracy Quartermain in terms of her, um, directness, but she is, uh, you know, she's just, she's, she's a loyal, good, smart, um, deep thinking, really, um, disciplined. Um, and she's the, the, the right, my left brain, you know, I have a lot, most of my friends are my left brain cause I'm so right brain. Uh, and I'm, it's true. I mean, most of my friends are these, you know, I'm, I'm just always the goofball, always the one, like something will happen. They go, of course it happens to Nancy. <laughs> you know? And they've always got all their shit together, but Jane is, is awesome. You know, she's awesome. Um, now, Alexis was recently pardoned and has made a graceful exit from Spring Ridge. So will you miss her prison garb? Yes. I mean, I'm glad they got me out of the beige. Um, <laughs> I think that was a line in the script, too, that they said something about, I, I, they let me add that. I said, it's just so beige. Uh, that was a bad part. Uh, but it was so comfortable. And I could just, you know, slap my hair in a ponytail and, you know, I didn't, I, you know, no heels it was so comfortable. Um, although I, I was ready to get out of prison because nothing happened there other than people would come over to talk about their plot. And then I'd have to ask them questions so they could do the exposition. And then I'd listen and I was like, get out, all of you get out. I'd rather sit here and play Scrabble with the inmates. <laughs> that is hilarious. Well, uh, fans are certainly clamoring for a new romance for Alexis, but uh, as you mentioned, your own dance card is rather full these days. You are engaged to be married. What can you tell us about the experience of finding love with your fiance, Richard? Well, you know, this is the story that I do for my sisters, meaning all the women out there, because to just tell you that what you think is impossible is possible at a very old age. Uh, no, I mean, it's not very old, but I never, I'm very, I've never lied about my age, never will. I'm very proud of every year of it. And I don't think women should ever hide behind any of it. And they should be as brilliant as they are at, at every age and, uh, and, and be happy about it. Um, so I was, um, once I had Kate, I had lots of relationships. Uh, not lot, I, mean, they, I was not a dater. I was either in a relationship or I was out of one. And uh, most of them were heartbreaking. Most of them were I got left because I would, in my growing process, would pretend, not pretend, I would present myself a certain way and then the real me would seep through and the guys would be going, Hey, I didn't sign up for this. And they were right. They didn't. And so that if I, you know, the title of my book may be, thank God he dumped me <laughs> because, <laughs> because through each relationship, I made quantum leaps of growth because what I really wanted was to feel good myself was to give myself all the things I was looking for other people to give me. 
Um, and it took me, you know, that's why I'm so glad I never got married. Um, and I could have probably would have married every one of these because I was clueless, you know, and none of them would have worked out. None of them. And it's so much easier to grow alone than it is to grow side by side with someone because then you're, you're constantly having to negotiate certain things where I had a wide open range of who I wanted to be, where I wanted to be, how I wanted to be, what I wanted to be. And so um, I paid a lot of attention. I'm in a research project out of things. And when, when I had Kate, that was a real sense of relief for me uh, because I thought, I don't really have to do this anymore. You know, I, I did it right the last couple of times and still it didn't work out. And that was, and I was okay with all of it. And I was very comfortable finally in my own skin. I had a spirituality that um, made sense to me. I had confidence. I had a career. I built, I, I could look back and see the things that I built and having Kate, that was, that was everything because I would have died unhappy had I not had her. That was that she was the it girl. And I used to write Catherine Grace in the sand for like 15 years and not knowing whether I have a girl or have a child at all. And so, um, you know, I felt like we were talking and talking and she, she says, I, you get ready, you get ready and I'll come. And so, um, you know, I did get ready and she came not the way I planned, but you know, things get orchestrated in, in ways that you can't even imagine and you don't even know why that you just have to you know, take it how it comes. And so, um, you know, having her, once I had her, I don't think I've ever been unhappy again. I, I really mean that. Of course, you know, there are days where I'm, you know, but, you know, go on Twitter and you can get unhappy in five seconds, <laughs> but it's a whole nother conversation. But, um, I just loved, I loved, and I went through terrible hardship in family court. It was just, uh, I, 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 I can't even find a word for it. It was just, it was, it was, it was truly traumatic. But I also realized what I was made of. I, I had warrior women around me. I was a warrior and it worked out great. So I have been solely responsible in raising Kate with my village of incredible people. And she's had a beautiful life because of General Hospital and of what they provided me that I could provide for her. And so uh, I just thought, okay, I, you know, this, this relationship thing is just not going to necessarily be my thing in this lifetime. And that's okay. Cause I am so happy with my life. So I just, and I literally, I think I had a small um, thing with Stephen Kay Reginald, he won't care if I say this because I'm mad for his wife, Piper uh, Parable. I love her so much and I love him. But I had a crush on Stephen for years and, you know, every, every time he'd come in on General Hospital. And anyway, so we had a thing for a few months. And outside of that, that was all I had, uh, in, you know, relationship-wise, from 40 to 60. And I was happy didn't feel like I was missing anything, didn't feel, uh, it just didn't, it was fine, it was good. And so I'm walking Kate into Thornton, and this was gonna be a difficult time because she was moved, going to college, and we obviously, Kate and I are very, very close. And, uh, but at least she wasn't going far away. And so I was walking her through Thornton, hoping she liked Thornton, which I knew was the best school for what she wanted to do, the Thornton School of Music at USC. 
and I was walking through, my friend was the head of the um, uh, dermatological uh, center at USC. And she said, meet me for lunch. I'll take you through Thornton. So we're walking through and Richard was sitting there. He's a masterful guitarist and he's a professor at USC music at Thornton. And he was sitting there playing his guitar and um, with a student, showing a student something. And I just literally, it was a look. I looked at him and I just went, oh, I mean, like I literally guessed. And then I turned and I walked away and I called one of my best friends, Pam Fryman. And I said, I just met him. I, ch- I just met the guy that I'm going to marry, that he's, that's him. And I've never, you know, I've never had that feeling. I've never said anything like that. And I, I, I have papers written from when I'm 19 saying he's a professor. He plays music. He's, you know, he's, you know, he, he's international. He travels a lot, you know, around the world. And Richard is, he's, he, he has things internationally all over the place. He's, he's world renowned. He, he teaches all over at universities, all over the world. Um, and he's one of the, you know, best jazz guitarists also in the field. He's, you know, but it was just a look. I didn't know anything about him. It was a look. And I called her and I, I called Pam to verify that. And, and I said, that's him. And because he looked up at me and he just sort of nodded, you know, and I just, I, I literally went, holy crap. And I am not some woo-woo head in this. I mean, my head is definitely in the sky, but my feet are also very rooted into the ground. So I'm not kooky in that regard. I don't blindly believe in things. I'll research it and you got I need to see some evidence. And, um, but this was just that moment. And it took me a while to reel, it took me six months to reel him in because all of a sudden, you know, he'd be doing, his, his, his class would be performing and there I'd be, and I'm like, hey, you know, <laughs> and then I'd wear something really sexy during Kate's performances because he, he would go to those and I'd stand right in front of him. And, you know, I mean, I, I really was, he, he'd never chance. <laughs> he'd never chance. I hooked him, rolled him right around, reeled him in. Um, and he was thinking, oh my God, that's a mom of a, of a student. I can't, and USC is not, you know, they don't play around. They're, they're very conservative and political. And, um, but I, he, he, he finally went, ah, yeah, I think you might be right. So it is, and that's at 60. And so let me tell women, um, you know, as they age beautifully, um, all the sex I didn't have for 20 years, I made up for it. So and ongoing and not, you know, not to be telling you too much. I mean, we're all grown ups, and we can, but you know, it's better and more beautiful and it's just all so good. So, you know, the best is yet to come is always a really good thing to, mm-hmm. to say. And it's so possible. And I never felt more beautiful. I never felt uh, better in my body. I, I, you know, it's just all of those things. So um, doesn't that make you feel good? You youngins, uh, you know, the two of you, yes. it, it should just give everybody tremendous hope. Which it does. Is, it's it's, it's my, my honor to do. I feel like that's a lot of the reason it happened too, so that I could tell you, you know, yes, Love everything's it. available to you always. <laughs> Well, we couldn't be happier that you're so happy. Um, And a lot of people listening 
like Mara and me, um, have likely been Nancy Lee Grand fans for many, many decades. So before we let you go, is there anything you'd like to say to the daytime fans who have been such fervent supporters of yours over the course of your daytime career? Well, you know, nothing that I haven't said before, because I do try to make a point of, of really letting, um, you know, this, this awesome, I call them discerning viewers um, that have, you know, are so loyal, been around so long. I, I, I've not been silent about my appreciation and gratitude for them. Um, and that, you know, and I, I, something that I've consistently said as well is that we're in this together, that I don't see, I see a connection. There's a connection between this audience and me that I feel you. I feel the audience when I'm working. I wait, I can feel your response. And then, then I know what to give or do or not do. And it's a working relationship and we've been together for a long time. So, um, I, 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 I've been consistent and I, I stay consistent in saying that how much I appreciate everyone on all sides of the political world. Obviously I'm, you know, we, we all made a pact. We weren't going to talk about this kind of stuff and I'm not, but I'm, what I'm going to say is we are all human beings with a beating heart. There's a lot of things at stake right now. I have a lot of strong opinions, not trying to be divisive, but I feel very strongly about how I feel about things. Um, but even still, we are all human beings in this little world, this little general hospital world, is something separate. It's a, it's a, it's a place where we are a community together everything else aside. And, um, I, I do make that, I can make that distinction and I really appreciate everyone. And I mean that when I say it. Well, Nancy, we very much appreciate you and all the time you gave us today and your amazing stories. Um, this is such a get for Mara and me, like we've been talking about you. Oh God. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, you. how many actors do you find that don't like to sit and talk about themselves for like three hours? You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I would. <laughs> I would. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We wish you the most fantastic 2022 and hope to speak to you again soon. Awesome. I love you guys very much. Thank you for taking good care of me all these years. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Nancy Lee Grand for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Podcast.